Hey everybody, today's show is brought to you by Hotels.com, the world's leading online accommodation site. Now I travel a fair bit, and every time I go away, I make sure to book through Hotels.com because they provide the best prices for hotels, vacations, Airbnbs, resorts, etc., etc., etc. You want a seaside apartment in my hometown in North Vancouver? You want a beautiful rental property in surf-friendly Costa Rica? Or perhaps you want to travel to Quebec City to visit the Plains of Abraham, or maybe even a trip to Normandy to see Juneau Beach. Whatever it is, this website will find you the best place quickly and with the best possible price. What I love about the website is that they have a price guarantee. If you find a lower price elsewhere, they will match it. Plus, their mobile app is super easy to use, which helps immensely when I'm on the move. So for the listeners of Cool Canadian History, Hotels.com is offering $30 off select hotel stays of $250 or more. Go to usehotels.com slash coolcanadianhistory and punch in the code LISTEN30 when you make your purchase. So that's usehotels.com slash coolcanadianhistory and punch in the code LISTEN30, L-I-S-T-E-N 30 when you make your purchase. There's really no point in booking elsewhere as Hotels.com has everything you need. Travel easy today and book Hotels.com. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today... Season 4, Episode 9, Kill the Indian, Save the Child, Residential Schools in Canada. The residential school system is one of the most tragic and shocking government programs ever enacted in the history of this nation. In an attempt to destroy Indigenous culture and replace it with white Christian culture, the program came close to nearly destroying an entire generation of Indigenous people. This week's book recommendation is Unsettling the Settler Within by Paulette Regan. This was published in 2010 by UBC Press, and this book is an incredibly well-written and well-researched text that seeks to expose the damages of the residential school system and how dramatically the residential school system has affected Indigenous communities across the country and the First Nations settler relationship up to present day in what Regan calls, and I quote, a settler call to action to better understand and face the impact of this dark stain on the Canadian historical narrative. So let's begin. In 1876, the Canadian government of Alexander Mackenzie and the Liberal Party merged a number of pieces of legislation together into the now infamous Indian Act. Effectively, the Indian Act sought to centralize government control and administration of the First Nations people under the newly created Department of Indian Affairs. Interestingly, the Act excluded Métis and Inuit from its jurisdiction. Representatives of the Department of Indian Affairs, now known as Indian Agents, would be tasked with the maintenance of the government's relationship with the First Nations, as well as overseeing any obligations agreed upon by both groups in previous treaties or simply enacted by government legislation. 
The ultimate purpose of this new centralized bureaucracy was to facilitate the assimilation of the First Nations into a white, Christian, and Canadian society. Under the auspices of the Indian Act, the government now categorized First Nations as wards of the state. As wards of the state, the government became responsible for ensuring that First Nations children received an education. Yet, Mackenzie's government at the time was not willing to spend any significant amount of money on the education of First Nations people. Priority for spending within the young Canadian state lay with railroads, urban infrastructure, and further economic opportunities. On the long list of budgetary responsibilities, the First Nations fell far to the bottom. However, as one of the primary objectives was to Christianize the First Nations, the churches took a direct interest in the work of the Department of Indian Affairs. This led to what we might call a marriage of convenience. The churches offered to pay for the construction of the schools and offered to staff them. In return, the government fulfilled their mandate of providing education while also ensuring that the First Nations people were subject to the teachings of the Christian churches. What ensued was, basically, the various denominations of Christianity effectively carving up different territories or reserves into canonical education districts. The Catholic Church in one place, Presbyterians in another, Methodists in another, Anglicans in another, and so on and so on, all throughout the country. So that by the early 1880s, the education of First Nations people was firmly in the hand of the Christian churches, while the government had effectively eschewed financial responsibility for them. Now initial problems became obvious as the churches essentially constructed their schools with little to no actual government oversight, while building them as quickly as possible with as little cost as possible. One department official at the time, a man named Martin Benson, called this, and I quote, the churches going wild on the subject of Indian education, end quote. What this meant was a large number of poorly built, poorly planned, and cheaply constructed schools were made, Again, Martin Benson commented on this, saying that the schools were, and I quote, put up without much consideration for the purpose for which they would be required, badly laid out without due provision for lighting, heat, and ventilation. Just to give you one example, and this may seem too ridiculous to be believed, but I assure you this is true. Several schools had their hospital wards constructed, opening up into classrooms, thus facilitating the spread of disease and infection while totally impeding the learning process. Finally, many of the schools were located in such isolated places as to limit the ability to supply them with adequate food and provisions, including medical supplies. Simply put, the Canadian government's resolve to process students cheaply, together with the church's missionary drive to convert as many kids as possible, led to overcrowding and poorly built facilities with unhealthy conditions, and ultimately to rampant disease and disproportionately high death rates. Students were particularly susceptible to tuberculosis. In fact, a report issued by a government inspector in 1907 surveyed 35 different schools and found that First Nations children in residential schools were suffering from a disproportionately higher death rate from TB than the national average. The report recommended improvements be made to student nutrition, to staff training, 
and to school infrastructure. The report was ignored. The same inspector, that was the man who wrote the 1907 report, a man named Peter Bryce, then issued a second report in 1922, directing attention once again to conditions which the government and churches were inflicting on First Nations children. The tuberculosis epidemic, which remained a persistent and serious problem throughout the 1930s, is just one example of how the Canadian government, despite full knowledge of the disease and conditions causing it, responded to critical situations with inaction. As Bryce concluded in his 1922 report, the trail of disease and death left by residential schools constituted a criminal disregard for treaty pledges and for the lives of First Nations people. Now, before we continue, I just want to give you a reminder. You can find us on all your podcast listening devices, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and of course at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. Now, if you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. So if you wanted to go on PayPal, for instance, you could donate five or ten bucks at your leisure. If you were on Patreon, you could commit to donating $1 per every episode published. So you can pick and choose how you want to go. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program as well. On our FB page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you. Please don't be shy, and I promise we'll respond. So let's continue. As early as 1895, there was a growing concern amongst both church officials and politicians that the educational system was not effectively replacing traditional indigenous culture with European Christian culture. The problem, identified by these various groups, was that the children were allowed to go home, and at the end of the day, where their parents and elders lived, their parents and elders would thus combat or go against or contravene these European Christian teachings. Thus, school attendance was made compulsory from 1895 onwards, after amendments were made to the Indian Act. A further amendment in 1920 tightened this control, authorizing officers to enter, and I quote, any place where he has reason to believe there are Indian children, end quote, and allowing the officers to issue penalties to uncompliant parents. In separating First Nations children From their parents and communities, residential schools inhibited the children's formation of a First Nations identity and damaged the strong cultural heritage of First Nations people, while Christianity was effectively used as a weapon in the attack on traditional Native spirituality. The curriculum for those now trapped in the residential school system was based on the half-day system, where children would engage in classwork in the morning for the first half of the day and in practical skills in the afternoon, the second half of the day. Domestic skills were for girls and agricultural and industrial skills for boys. Although theoretically this labor was part of the student's education, in practice this essentially forced child labor, which helped subsidize school operations. Obviously the most damning aspect of these residential schools was that children were subjected to every form of abuse, physical, verbal, sexual, and psychological. 
although some students did, in fact, report positive experiences in the residential school program, much more common are reports of exploitation, neglect, and abuse. Former students of the Kamloops Residential School frequently spoke of being smacked or beaten for minor offensives such as swapping chores or losing a single sock. Children were humiliated for bedwetting and labeled dumb or dirty savage for performing poorly in school. This seriously damaged the children's sense of self-worth, exacerbating learning difficulties which stemmed from poor teaching and learning conditions. Children, removed from their parents as young as three, were often offered no emotional support, and reports of loneliness and children being reprimanded for crying are common. Hunger was a consistent problem in schools. As survivor George Manuel recalled, Hunger is both the first and last thing I can remember about that school. More insidiously, residential schools were frequently centers of sexual predation. One former student of Kamloops Residential School reported how male supervisors would knock up our people because to them, we were nothing. In cases where this resulted in pregnancy, girls would often be forced to have abortions, and the evidence incinerated. Similarly, reports of boys being abused by the teaching staff were not uncommon as well. Children were made to attend chapel each morning where they were harangued on the evils of their family's way of life. As one survivor of the Kamloops Residential School attested, I remember getting up and praying and going to class and praying. Every day you were praying and praying and praying. Children became the agents of change, often returning home only to ridicule and refuse to participate in the ceremonies and rituals of their own culture and people indoctrinated to consider such customs the work of the devil. Children were forbidden to speak their native language at school and were chastised, punished, or beaten for disobeying this prohibition. This cultural damage refers not only to First Nations culture in general, but to great cultural loss across many First Nations communities, each with distinct local cultures, languages, and dialects. Ultimately, these schools prepared children neither for integration into mainstream society nor for a return to their own communities. And despite wide resistance from parents and indigenous leaders, provisions for coercive enforcement of school attendance remained intact until 1951. That was when the Indian Act was finally overhauled. But the damage had been done. Thousands of First Nations children were now traumatized from years of abuse, were culturally dislocated from their people without the skills or education to survive in settler society, and still subject to the racism and marginalization from Canadian settler society and communities. This merely exacerbated growing problems within Indigenous communities themselves. While the modern-day Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a major step in healing and moving forward, the scars of the residential school program are still very evident today. And for most of the 150,000 First Nations that attended residential schools, the scars will probably be evident long down the road. And this will take time, effort, and cooperation by the Indigenous communities, the Canadian government, and the Canadian people, in order to truly heal. 
A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And I want to thank you all for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Until next time, stay cool.